This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mysteries with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former Russian KGB spy. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Sample, on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the super awesome science show. They're women of wonder. Their work is embraced in mystique. They have sometimes gone rogue and even created a storm. They have captained marvels and taken us further than we could have ever imagined. They are the superheroines of science, and we need them more than ever. This week, we're going to honor the women who have used science to improve our lives. We're going to talk with one of Canada's biggest superheroines who has blazed a path of glory here on Earth and in space. And in our SAS class, we're going to talk with a super researcher who is working to help women and girls find their own super science power. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to show you the importance of women, not just in science, but in our lives. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Can you name a female scientist? The answer is most likely going to be yes, with responses such as Marie Curie, Jane Goodall, and most recently, Katherine Johnson, the woman responsible for sending Americans into space and the subject of the hit film, Hidden Figures. But when the question becomes, can you name two female scientists? Well, the numbers drop dramatically. In studies conducted over the last decade in various parts of the world, the awareness of female scientists has proven to be poor at best. Which is a shame, because in the science, engineering, technology, and mathematics professions, commonly known as STEM, women make up about 60% of the university graduates. In the workforce, it's quite a bit different. Women only make up about a third of the positions in these fields, and their reach is usually confined to scientific publications and the occasional conference. But imagine if you could name something in your daily life that was invented by a woman. The task would then be so much simpler. Who has a refrigerator? You wouldn't if it wasn't for Florence Parpart. She invented it in 1914. What about the dishwasher? You'd still be wrinkling your fingertips if it wasn't for Josephine Cochran, who invented it in 1887. Let's not forget central heating. That came from the mind of Alice H. Parker, who developed the first furnace in 1919. 
The same thing goes for the car heater, although it was Margaret Wilcox who invented this wonderful addition back in 1893. Then there's the device that you're using right now to listen to this show. The computer and telecommunications industry is due to women. Ada Lovelace developed the first computer code. If you've ever heard of the first supercomputer ENIAC, you need to know about the ENIAC girls. Marilyn Meltzer, Betty Holbertson, Kathleen Antonelli, Ruth Teitelbaum, Jean Bartik, and Francis Spence. Grace Hopper developed the first compiler allowing us to use code. And down in Hollywood, the actress Hedy Lamarr was putting together the blueprint for wireless communication. When it comes to the computing world, one superheroine has helped to take us to a realm we never expected to reach. She first worked to develop computers that could listen to and act upon voice commands back in the 1990s. But this was only the beginning, as her research eventually led to the world in which we now live, where we may never need to type or click again. Our voices can instruct computers, devices, and even that fridge in our kitchen. While this would be enough to make this woman a science superheroine, she was just getting started. Not soon after, she launched into space as the second Canadian woman to venture beyond our terrestrial borders. This would have been enough for most superhumans, but she wasn't quite done. On October 2nd, 2017, she was installed as Canada's true superheroine by attaining this country's highest honor, the Governor General of Canada. She is Her Excellency, the Right Honorable Julie Payette, and I am thrilled to welcome her to the show. This show is all about presenting science in a fun manner, and part of that is exploring the journey of being a scientist. You've had an enriching career that started as an engineer. When I talk to other researchers, there's a moment when they decide that this is the direction they wish to follow. What was the spark that led you down this path? You know, I think I'm going to answer that question in two parts. One, I've always liked understanding how things worked and uh, what science had to say the story it was telling. So when I was a kid, I was receiving at home a a magazine that had uh, all kinds of things, science and technology for kids. And they talked about everything, dinosaurs and biology, physics astronomy. So I was already interested in that kind of thing all along. Then, because, and I will show my age, when I went to, uh, what, the equivalent of 12th grade, grade 13, that's when I was introduced to coding. It was brand new, brand new, brand new. Nobody had computers before that. And so that I really uh, thoroughly enjoy as well. And then I had to decide what I was going to do for university. We're in the early 80s, and I'm sitting on the fence. I actually remember sitting on the fence right there uh, on University Road in Montreal because there's the engineering faculty on the west side of that road, and there's a music faculty on the east side of that road. So I was just sitting there on the wall, there's a wall, and thinking, God, I really like to go and do a degree in music. But I also really like to go and do a degree in engineering. And then I pondered, and it was pretty quick. Uh, I could not make a really very good living as a musician doing science on the side because I wasn't that good a musician. But I was definitely going to be able to to do a really fine job as an engineer and do music quite a lot on the side, and, and that's what I did. You started out when computer coding was just emerging. 
you were focusing on artificial intelligence, voice recognition, and other smart technology that is now everywhere, from our phones to our household appliances. What was it like being a pioneer in this field? Well, it's very kind of you to say the word, but it's not exactly the way it was. There were several of us working on that field, and at the time, uh, we didn't use the word artificial intelligence all over the place now. But there were colleagues working in robotics, others in voice recognition, others in natural language processing like me, or others in character recognition or video processing, data analysis. Machine learning was really, really at, at its beginning, and machine translation was not very up to par. So all that stuff existed at, at that time. We just didn't lump it under the term AI. Today, it's a very fancy word, but, but I was certainly not alone in there and it was so much fun because it was we was really groundbreaking and the technology was really finally getting to a point where we could process uh data fast enough to get to to start getting good results and that's the reason why today we see the eclosion of ai this much because the computing power of our computers is a lot higher than it used to be and then now we are able to crunch real data you were the second Canadian female astronaut to venture into space. That's a huge career change from my perspective. What was the transition like for you? Right now, and it's still the case, it will change at one point in time, but currently space agencies that fly people in space recruit astronauts from a pool of people who are already working. There's no school where you can go and do your bachelor in astronaut training and then just apply to an astronaut program. Every astronaut that gets picked to be trained as an astronaut is someone that comes from another, another field, a medical doctor, a scientist, engineers. Many uh, come from the military, have operational experience with a technical background. So it's actually not, not at all foreign. It currently requires uh, that that it's a prerequisite to apply to have a technical or a scientific background. The reason is that the job that we're asked to do is technical and based in science and technology. So, so having that background, then they can train us for the Delta, which is how to operate the spaceship and how to operate the instruments on board the spaceship and how to do the spacewalks and the robotics and, and the dynamic maneuvers. And that they do... They train us from a, a known background, if I can say. It's, a, it's like if you recruit for a, a national team of swimming. You don't, you don't recruit someone that doesn't know how to swim. You, you will recruit someone that's already very good at swimming, and then you're going to train them for the Olympics. The work that you did in space was fundamental for science, but I imagine you personally gained much more than that. How did your experience help you to be a leader on this planet? Oh, I, I can tell you, and I use this uh, in my current job now all the time, is that if there's something that my 22 years as an astronaut has taught me is, is the power of collaboration. That if you put your head and your heart and your resources together, you can accomplish a lot more. So it's, it's, uh, it's the importance of letting some of the differences aside, cherishing difference, and working together toward a common goal. And I use that now very much as an example because it, it is also a form of diplomacy. Astronauts, when they go and fly in a spaceship with people from other countries, are representatives of their countries. 
and uh, we, we become science diplomats to some extent. And uh, I really enjoy that aspect too, of wor- working with other countries, of really making efforts together to advance something. Like the International Space Station is an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, realization and accomplishment. When you think about it, it's been in space with people on board nonstop for more than 18 years. And it was built by people who 75 years ago were killing each other in the Second World War and even more before that. So, And we don't hear much about it most of the time, even though there are people on board all the time from different nationalities for the good reason that it works, that we get along, that Moscow and Houston and Montreal and and then Tsukuba, Japan, are speaking every day. You are now the Governor General of Canada, and from day one, you have been supporting this universal concept, especially when it comes to STEM. How do you see your role as an inspiration for women and girls who want to explore STEM as a vocation or career, or maybe just a lifestyle? There's two sides of your question. When, when you say that, uh, that you know, science is, is, uh, is worldwide, it always has been. If I give the example just for space flight, the, the person that really started to invent uh, rocketry is a Russian scientist from the early 1900s, Viktor Tsiolkovsky. And then uh, many people used what he was uh, doing in different ways, but uh, there was this uh, American, Goddard, who uh, took that one step further when he used liquid fuel. But it's a German who was uh, employed by uh, the war machine in Germany during the World War II that ended up immigrating to the United States. That turned that into uh, a vehicle that took people to the moon. And in the meantime, there was also an engineer in Russia who uh, turned ballistic missile into uh, rockets to propel humans, and that's what led to the first human to go in space. So all of this, it's the same thing. But it was done, okay, I'm exaggerating here because there was, there was a definitely Cold War aspect to this, but the idea that science is not universal is actually, it is, it always has been. Scientists talk to each other a lot more sometimes than even governments do because they're part of, networks and associations and they have conferences uh, when Pluto and when it was voted that Pluto would be demoted to a dwarf planet and no longer a full planet of our solar system well that was done at one of the congress of the uh, Union Internationale de l'Astronomie which is an international group so people who voted were from all over the planet which was kind of fitting for something that was going on outside the planet my second thing, when you say, will I make a point in this mandate to encourage young people to consider careers in science, technology, and in math? Absolutely. But I will do that for everyone. Because we, as a nation that requires specialists and technologists and engineers and scientists and people who can build and fix things, We have to encourage everyone. We can't leave anybody behind. We know that uh, if, uh, you know, we continue at the rate now with the growth of our population being somewhat not that fast, we're going to have a shortage of engineers and computer scientists in the decades to come. So anybody that can be interested in those types of careers, 
is going to have a ton of fun and will serve society and their country really well. What advice can you give the people out there who believe that STEM is for them, but are still sitting on the fence outside the engineering building in Montreal? By the way, I love that area of the city. You know where, uh, you know where I am, when I mean, it's right on the corner of University and Sherbrooke. Yeah, it is. Uh, I, it's, I, it's, I, I love that area. It's just so beautiful to walk in, even in the winter. Yes, indeed. I believe that anything requires effort, no matter what, what, what career we choose and what path we choose. Maybe because I, I come from a, a simple background. If am I, I am going to put a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of sweat into something, there might as well be something I like. So if you like it, if you have some talent in it, and we all have talent in many things, by the way, then go for it. Because it's a, it's a guarantee that the, even the, the initial training that you will receive in science, and also in, in, uh, in computer science nowadays where we need computers for everything we do. It's a, it's a background. And if you hesitate and you're not so sure, go for the science part because you can always go back to something else. It's a little harder, though, 20 years later to go and redo a science degree. But it doesn't mean that uh, it's not possible. Everything's possible. I totally agree. I don't have a PhD myself, but I'm published. I'm still publishing. It's just one of those things where if you believe it, have that passion and put in the work, I find you can be successful. And having those letters behind your name, yeah, it's a great thing. But sometimes people focus on that a little too much. I think sometimes it's really just about what you love. It depends what, and I, and I totally agree. You don't need to have necessarily five degrees in order to be a prolific writer or a good astronaut or a fine musician. And what it, what, what it is, is... It Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's how you apply all this. Uh, in, interestingly, astronauts are, are very much jack-of-all-trades. If they're too specialized, well, once we're up there in the spaceship, like David Saint-Jacques right now, he's not only an operator of scientific exper ex experiments, he's also a spacewalker, a videographer, a photographer. He does the cleaning, the cooking. The laundry doesn't work because we don't have laundry machines, but uh, he's an He's a sportsman, he's into fitness, he does outreach and, and uh, education, he's teaching. You see, it's not just one thing, so it, it's good to have many chords. Uh, and that's what I encourage young people to do as well. Yeah, it's SAS class time, and today we're going to talk to another superheroine who is working to help all of us learn more about the importance of science in our lives. 
Her name is Dr. Molly Shoikit, and she is one of the most successful researchers this country has to offer. She has published more than 500 papers, patents, and abstracts on the subjects of regenerative medicine, tissue engineering, and drug delivery. In 2015, she won the L'Oreal UNESCO Four Women in Science Award for North America and is the only person to be a fellow of Canada's three national academies. The Canadian Academy of Sciences of the Royal Society of Canada, the Canadian Academy of Engineering, and the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. She's also working to help others gain an appreciation for science and find the spark that can lead to great things. What was your spark that led you down the path towards science and engineering? I think the spark really started just with my upbringing. I was really uh, encouraged to uh, pursue the things that I loved, and I, I loved science. And so that was from a young age in my family. My mom and my dad both encouraged me to pursue science and I had a great high school chemistry teacher, Mr. Mallon, and that got me excited about chemistry and I had a great math teacher as well, but I realized I wasn't as good in math as I was in chemistry and so when I got to university I, I pursued chemistry and and then, you know, I always thought about going into medicine but ended up pursuing a, a PhD and ended up uh, getting my PhD in polymer science and engineering, which was a lot of polymer chemistry, but then was able to bring my interests in uh, medicine back and worked in a biotech company and then found my way to academia at the University of Toronto. So not really one thing, but just that, that curiosity and that encouragement to pursue the things I loved. You've gone through so many different stages to get where you are today. But you haven't just focused on research. You've chosen to give back to the public in a variety of ways. Tell us more about the work that you're doing outside of the lab. Yeah, so I really am passionate about science, its communication, and its translation. In sort of our world means commercialization. And um, science communication is how do we engage the public in, in research. And I remember a number of years ago realizing the power of film in telling stories. And in Toronto, where I'm located, we have the Toronto International Film Festival. And with TIFF, we bring the world uh, to our city. And of course, we bring celebrities, but there's a lot of excitement uh, in that. And I just thought, you know, I wonder if we could do something similar around research. And could we engage the public in research? And it, you know, it's not easy to do, but could we take advantage of the power of film to tell stories? Because often I found myself and my colleagues, you know, we would talk to each other, but we wouldn't necessarily get out of our comfort zone to speak to the public and engage the public. But I thought if the public doesn't actually know what we're doing, it's very difficult for them to value what we're doing. And yet we in our own little echo chamber felt that we, what we were doing was so important and what we were doing was paving the way towards a better future, yet nobody really knew about that. And so that was the real motivation for research to reality. I realized uh, very early on, uh, obviously not a film producer, and so I was able to engage Mike McMillan, who is a feature film producer, to partner with me, and, and together we started Research to Reality. 
But I also love just that intersection of science with other disciplines, such as the arts, and had the opportunity uh, through U of T to have a series of shows um, that really highlight the intersection of different disciplines. In my own research, we work at the intersection of different disciplines, so engineering, chemistry, biology, medicine. Um, but this was now an opportunity to engage the public just in terms of their curiosity and to have them think about things differently. So now, actually, there's even an art exhibit up at Pearson Airport, which are all science images. But if you looked at them, you wouldn't necessarily know they're science images. You might just think something is snake skin, or you might think something are beautiful purple balls, you know, suspended or whatever. But it's not until you look at them that you go, oh, wow, those are actually retinal cells, you know, cells in the, from your eye. So, or, or whatever. So that's, that's what I love is just piquing people's curiosity and bringing them into the world that I live in and, and the wonder because it's really such a, a wonderful world to be in. I absolutely love looking at some of the high-profile microscopy images. But I have to admit, I've, do, I've seen some atomic force microscopy images that just kind of blow me away. The fact that we can actually look and see atoms at the very individual level is just completely fascinating. From your perspective as a chemistry researcher, where can we go with chemistry moving forward? Chemistry is really at the root of so much of what we see in all different sectors of our economy and uh, you know, and, and the big areas are a focus of, of nations relate to energy, environment, and health, right? These are big economic drivers, and uh, we see chemistry in all of those different areas. You might say on the good side and the bad side of them, but, um, but there is, there is um, lots of great work going on in environmental chemistry in terms of, of cleaning up the environment, in terms of creating um, materials that are safe, that are, you know, people call green, which means that they're recyclable. Um, you see that, obviously, in, in energy and environment. My area is more related to health, and so we're inventing new materials that can do a better job of, say, delivering stem cells to where they need to go or delivering therapeutic biomolecules. There's so much, you know, and, and then it's not just chemistry, right? Because chemistry on its own can only go so far. But it's that, that intersection with engineering and biology uh, that I find so fascinating. You've received a number of awards, including the L'Oreal UNESCO Four Women in Science Award for North America back in 2015. In light of your journey and as a laureate of this prize, do you think that the climate for women in science has changed compared to when you started your journey? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think a lot of things have changed, and I always sometimes worry that we become a little bit complacent as well. But for sure, you know, we have more women now in engineering than we used to have, and so it's not because it just happened. I think that there's been true leadership in terms of engaging um, women who've applied to programs to come and accept the offers at the undergraduate level. 
We have more uh, role models and mentors for women in science. And, you know, you might say, like, who cares? Like, why do we need women in science, right? And, and my answer to that is that we are trying to solve really big problems. And if we only depend on half of our population to, to solve those problems, then we probably won't be successful. And so we really need to take advantage of the creativity of all of us and the inspiration that people will bring to solving those problems from different perspectives. Um, And so that's why I think it's really important to have women in science. And I do think that things have changed. I mean, things have changed much more, I'd say, in the Western world, in the developed world, than they have perhaps in other countries. But things have changed all over the world. You know, the world I know best is, is the one I, I live in, and that's in Canada. And so there, there are many more opportunities for women, and, and there's still more to come. We really are seeing more women coming out as role models, not just for other women, but also for girls in STEM. What do you think is still needed in order to be sure that the next generation of girls is inspired to pursue STEM? I really think it's important to engage men and women, boys and girls, in this discussion because what we're trying to do is change society and change society's perceptions of what girls should do or what women should do. And we're not going to change society by just engaging with with girls and women. So we need to engage, you know, moms and dads um, because they ha- probably have the biggest influence on the careers of their children. And um, I'm a mother of, of two sons and and I realized that I had a responsibility to raise my sons to uh, respect women in careers and, and not just to respect them, but to value them. And so I think it's really important that our conversation crosses gender lines and that we're not just talking to girls. Of course, it's, it's fantastic to serve as a role model. But, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I have several graduate students uh, and postdoctoral fellows who are women, and they are role models for the undergraduate students. You know, and the undergraduate students, they might not realize this, but they're actually role models for the high school students, and the high school students are role models uh, for the elementary school students. So, like, we can all serve. We all play a part, because it's hard for somebody in high school maybe to look at, I mean, maybe I'm a role model, but I'm also so far removed from where they are today that it's nice for them just to look at the person the step ahead of them and see them as a role model. For the young women who do want to pursue a career in STEM, and we should include their parents, what would you suggest they do to get a start on their journey? If you're a, a young girl or a young boy and you're interested in in science or technology, engineering, math, in the STEM field, then then it's fantastic. And the reason why I say it's fantastic is because there's so many opportunities to have a career in something that you love. You need to get an advanced degree in order to make a difference in that field just because it, it is hard and there's a lot of knowledge you need to gain. But there are so many opportunities once you have that knowledge, you can go into so many different fields. And even if you take your STEM knowledge and go into business or law or medicine, into one of the professions, into engineering, if you take that and go into 
working in industry, you're going to take that that knowledge and, and you can see there's so many things that you can do with an advanced degree in science. And the reason why it's so exciting for me is because it's that idea of inventing the future. You can have an idea and then you can think about, well, how can I turn that idea into something real? And then if you know, if you have that knowledge, then you have that capacity to do that. So your question is like, how do I start? And you start, I would say, just by getting out there and doing things in society and not everything you're going to do. And certainly the first things you do, you know, you're not going to invent a cure for cancer at the beginning. But maybe what you can do is get into a science fair. Really start to learn what science is about. Because I think, unfortunately, the way we teach science in schools tends to be more dogmatic and it tends to be like just about facts and memorization, where science is really about answering questions. And so if you can start your journey by trying to answer a question through a science fair, then that's a really nice opportunity. And and maybe your school has one and maybe it doesn't. Or maybe you want to learn more by taking some courses. Either You know, the universities often offer courses for kids in high school or students in high school to learn a little bit more and dive a little bit deeper. And, and so these then provide opportunities just to get your, you know, sort of like dipping your foot into the pool and seeing how you like it. And then if it's warm, you want to dive in and learn more. And, and just by having those experiences, you're exposing yourself to different opportunities, different ways of thinking, and, and, and to different people. And, and then you're creating those connections that can then lead to the next thing. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it sparks you to go out and find your own science superheroines. For a curious cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. If you have any questions or want to make a comment on the show, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at JATetro. For comments longer than 280 characters, including ideas for the show... You can always email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen to us at curiouscast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Super Awesome Science.